so one of the things that uh, I get to do is I get to come over here pretty frequently, uh, and I'm really thankful for that. Because uh, a part of my ministry is to make sure that pastors are taking care of themselves. And so Anthony having the ability to take a little vacation and feel secure in that uh, is great. And I'm glad that he gets this chance to step away from, from the church to rest, to refresh himself, to see the big, big picture. So when he comes back, he can, he can lead and hear from God very well. Another reason I'm excited about this is you guys are also my, my second church family. Because I'm over here, uh, I'm over here so often, and so you know, you know me. I know you guys, and one of the things I've been working on is is writing a book. And because you guys are my second, uh, you're my second church home. I brought the book with me today because it's done. It's it's coming out on on September first, and uh, the reason the reason I wrote this book is the same reason that I, I, I like to, to provide a space that pastors can have a weekend off, and the same reason that I try to help dis coach people in their discipleship, because I want them to, to, to break free from following Jesus in a way that is just nothing more than modifying behavior. I want people to experience the freedom and joy that is following Jesus. So I, I hope if you pick up a copy that, that it blesses you. One of the things I did in the book is I, I tried to fill it with a lot of questions. Uh, I, I, I'm just very fond of questions because when you ask somebody a good question, it, it requires the, the person hearing the question to process. It requires them to internalize uh, the information to really d decide, do you believe what, what, you are, what you're saying or not? So questions force us to evaluate our mindset. And they also motivate us to learn a little bit more about ourselves. If we, if we can or can't answer a question, or if we, when we answer something, we feel like we're, we're not being authentic, well, whether or not we, we let that other person know, it causes us to reflect. In relationship, questions build trust. When you ask somebody a question, then you show a genuine desire to, to listen to that person. That is a trust uh, trust-building endeavor. And so last week, I, I resurrected a, a series that I, I did last year when Anthony took his, his vacation called Essential Questions. And it's, it's going through and looking at some of the questions that Jesus asked disciples or people that he encountered uh, throughout his ministry. And so Jesus ask lots of questions. If you read through the Gospels, there are hundreds of questions that Jesus asked of people. A good question has the power to change perspective. And that's how Jesus used them. It's a way, to, a way that Jesus used to probe to the core of who a person is, to get to their heart, because it's from the heart that everything else, else comes. So Jesus asked questions that were directed at the, the spiritual life. And so this week and next week, we're going to be looking at uh, two questions that Jesus asked in this passage of, uh, of the book of Mark. Okay, if you're not f too familiar with the Bible, there's four Gospels that tell the story uh, of Jesus and his ministry, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, I, I'm, I favor Mark just because it's like the ADD Gospel. Okay, Mark wastes no time with, with lengthy exposition. He gets right to the point every time. So there's this section in Mark that starts in chapter 8, verse 22, and goes all the way through the end of, of chapter 10. And it, it starts and ends with Jesus healing a blind person. 
in the middle are lots of questions that Jesus asks, lots of miracles that Jesus does, all directed at the idea of who he is. Okay, Him revealing that he is the Son of God, that he is going to Jerusalem to die. And he addresses the spiritual condition of the hearers. It's a, it's a great section. Mark 8, verse 22 through the end of chapter 10. It's, it's worth a, a read. So as we peer in on the Jesus and his disciples today, we, are, we already read the passage. I'll go through it again. It starts off with, with them heading to Jerusalem. Okay, they're, in, they're in Capernaum, but they're, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the, for the final week of his life. And so it, with this particular question, Jesus is focusing in on, on the disciples. Just before what we read and what was on the screen, Jesus had just told his disciples again that when he got to Jerusalem, he was going to die. That he was going to hand himself over and he was going to die and he was going to be raised. And this filled the disciples with, with fear. They still don't understand their vision of who Jesus is and what's going to happen and how Jesus is going to set up the kingdom of God, uh, it, their vision of that is, is not yet clear. They're still focused on themselves. Yeah, I've, I've mentioned this before and I'm, I've come over. I'm sure Anthony has mentioned this before, but the, the disciples had expectations of Jesus. They thought Jesus was coming in to, to establish a new kingship in Israel and that they were going to thrust the Roman occupiers and get rid of them. And Israel was going to be a whole nation again. It was going to, uh, it was going to be ruled by, by a king that was set in place by God. And it wasn't Jesus that was giving the disciples their identity. It was what was going to happen when Jesus took office that was defining who, who the disciples were. And so because of that, we're going to enter into this passage and we're going to see the question that Jesus asks. So Mark 9 verse 33 it's going to be on the screen again. You can pull out your phone. Maybe you brought your Bible with you. It says, they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? Okay, so th this is great. You know, that th they're having this conversation. They're probably off to the side. They don't think Jesus knows a thing that's going on. But of course, Jesus, he's, he's, he's God. He's, he knows what's in the heart of man. And right now, Jesus asked this pointed question, because he's shedding light on the, the, the false things that the disciples are, are following. See, he, he knows their blindness. He's been, he's been with them for years now. He knows that they're still stuck in this, in this false vision of what's going to happen pr pretty soon. And Jesus knows that if, if, they, if, if they are going to establish the kingdom, that they have to they have to understand that what's going to happen is about surrender and it's about sacrifice. And here, here's a beautiful thing about Jesus. And this is true in all of our lives. Jesus isn't content to leave us where we are. Sometimes the, the path and the change and the transformation is tough and it's painful and, and we go through these periods of not understanding. But, but Jesus is not content that we, we stay where we are. He wants us to continue to, to grow and become more like him. 
And so what we see here among the disciples is that passion for self, looking out for number one, this produces conflict. As, As you are kept from getting what you want, okay, as you are kept from getting what you want, this produces conflict. See, even before this whole scene, if you go back just a few more verses, beginning of chapter 9, Jesus took three of the disciples up to the top of a mountain. He took Peter, took James, and he took John. He took them to the top of a mountain, and he was transfigured before him, mean, before them, meaning that he, he revealed his true nature, his, what he truly looked like, his true power. He revealed it to them, and they were overwhelmed. And coming down the mountain, Jesus gives this curious instruction to these three, and he says, don't tell anybody what you just saw until, uh, until after I've died and been, been raised again. Hey, this is, this is just our little secret. So you can kind of see what's going on. So they're walking down the road. Jesus has just professed that he's going to die and be raised. And so you got these disciples that their vision is on this kingdom that's supposed to be established. And they're thinking, okay, if Jesus isn't going to be here, who's going to be in charge? So naturally, a fight ensues. So I'm sure Peter and James and John are like, well, we went to the top of the mountain, saw stuff we can't tell you about right now. So it's obviously going to be us. And some of the other disciples, no, no, hang on. Andrew says, no, no, I introduced you to Jesus. It's going to be me. You know, so they're having this argument about who's, who is, who's the greatest. So when we, we don't get what we want to build ourselves up, this causes conflict. But we can rephrase this. We can rephrase Jesus' question. Instead of saying, what, what were you arguing about on the road? As we, as we reflect on our lives, we can ask this question of ourselves. What am I anxious about? What what is causing me to feel insecure? As I'm relating to somebody else, what's causing me frustration? What's making me angry day to day? Why am I jealous in my relationship? You see, these are all symptoms The conflict that the disciples were experiencing, the anxiety, the insecurity, all of these things are symptoms of us trying to to grab on to what we want. The, 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 The isms of the world, right? Racism, sexism, nationalism, all the big all the big isms are the same thing. They are basically saying this category that I belong to is better than other categories. Because that's how we we define ourselves that way because we want to we want to boost ourselves up. We want to get rid of insecurity. We want to take control. We want to have power. We want what we want. And we put something else ahead of our trust in Jesus and who he is. So we build a sense of identity, meaning we try to find a source of wholeness that's apart from God. That's the lie. Page two of the Bible, Adam and Eve, tree, apples, serpent, and the the serpent says, God doesn't have your best interests in heart. He told you not to eat this because he knows that you'll be just like him if you do. That there's, there's a way you can be like God and he's keeping it from you. It's the lie. And that's the lie the disciples were believing, is that there's a way that they could be, uh, be like God. In the book of James, okay, one of the three that went to the top of the mountain, he writes, he writes this. 
maybe he was thinking of his experience walking down the, walking down the road and Jesus confronting him. This is James chapter 4, first three verses. It says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? That desire that I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to create my own sense of worth. I don't, I don't need other people. I don't need God. I'm going to take care of it. You desire, but you do not have. So you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So that whole thing is referring to our identity. When we ask God for things, so often we are asking because we just, we want the easy way. We want what we think is going to be best for us instead of the path that requires surrender and sacrifice that Jesus is leading his disciples into. And so we kick and we scream and we fight and then we see other people have what we want and so we, we have conflict and we kill and we covet and we do all of these things because we're trying to create our own sense of self. So just after Jesus told them that he was going to die, it fueled their fear it fueled their thoughts that they that God that Jesus and God could not be trusted and there was the quarrel they want to know who ranks higher here's their response okay so here's the response of the disciples they kept quiet they didn't say a word because on the way they had been arguing about who was the greatest so they were confronted by this thing and they knew it was ridiculous, right? Have you, have you ever done that? Have you been fighting with somebody and maybe been called out on it? You just know how ridiculous it's going to sound to speak this out. I, I remember, remember being a kid and I'm sure everyone here has had the same sort of experience. Okay. Uh, the house I grew up in as a kid, the kitchen and the living room were parallel rooms. There was a big dividing wall. You could not see through. There was no windows. There was nothing. In fact, the kitchen had a door that led away from the living room into another room. There was no direct line of sight. So me and my sister, we would be in the living room. Maybe it was me and my friends. And, and so we'd be jumping on the couch, right? And so then all of a sudden, my mom's voice from the kitchen, are you guys doing something in there? And what's the response of every kid when they are caught doing something that they're not supposed to do? They say, oh, what are you doing in there? nothing, right? So it's kind of this shy, embarrassed, I, I, I know that, that I shouldn't be doing this. This is, this is the, what the disciples were going through. As an aside, for a long time, I thought my mom could see through walls, like that she, that she was Jesus or something like that. But it turns out, okay, just so that you know she's not, Okay. It turns out that there was a, a curio cabinet in the room next to the kitchen, so she could see what we were doing in the living room. So when we were conspiring, when we were, when we were playing swords with the fireplace equipment and we were causing destruction, she knew exactly what was going on. So there was that. She didn't reveal that to me until, until I was a teenager and could drive and things like that. Anyway, that's a, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother issue. But when you get caught and you know something sounds bad, 
when you know something's going to make you feel that sense of shame and, and, and worthlessness and like, I knew I shouldn't be doing this. The disciples definitely didn't want to say, oh, hey, Jesus, we were just, we were just thinking about who's the most awesome of the 12 of us. Yeah, you, you got any input on, the, on this? You know, this doesn't sound great. Here's the truth, though. We all have a desire to be significant. This, this desire is, is part of us. We're all created with this desire. So the problem with the desire to be significant, the problem with, with almost all of our desires is not that we have them. It's that we haven't refined them. Right? We, we, we tend to live pursuing our passions, and so then they control us. Instead of living in trust and surrender and controlling our passions. See, our, our, our desire to be significant, our desire for intimacy, our desire for security, our desire for, 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 for anything is meant to be fulfilled in the image of God. That's how we were created. We were created to function in the image of God. But instead, we let our desires loose. And so we, we end up with this contrast right here. We've got this contrast with, the, with, with Jesus and the disciples. On the one hand is Jesus, and he's talking about sacrifice. This is the path to significance that he is trying to teach the disciples about. On the other hand, you got the disciples, and they're arguing, okay, because it's not about sacrifice to them. It's about where do I rank? So for Jesus, the, the sacrifice means that you give your life, okay? It, it, you, it goes out. It's an outward expression. For the disciples, it means I need to create fulfillment. It's got to come to me, okay? What, what is going to help me out? For Jesus, there's a cost. There is a cost to significance. There are, there's a cost to having a life that matters and that it, that's worth living. For, for the disciples, they were not focused on cost. They were focused on gain. What can I gain through this? What can I gain by following Jesus? And what's the difference? Well, the difference is that Jesus was living a life surrendered to the Father. Jesus was living a life where he said, it's not, not my will, but it's his will. Because I trust that he has my best interest at heart. The disciples were living a life focused on themselves and what was best for them and what was going to create their own little kingdom rather than the kingdom of God. But in the next verse that we're going to read in Mark, you notice Jesus doesn't, doesn't give the answer that we so often hear to our desires. Jesus doesn't tell them to repress their desires. He doesn't tell them to, 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 to try harder to not want to be significant, right? That, that's what we try to do. We try, we try harder. We want to be better. We want to we act properly. And so we, we stuff down those things. You know, if, if I have a desire, it's best that I just grind it down to a nub and not feel anything. And we act as if that's a healthy response. Here's, here's what Jesus does. He addresses this desire. And he says this, right before he says it, sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and he said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last 
and the servant of all. You see, Jesus' question to the, to the twelve was not punitive. He, he wasn't trying to make them feel worthless. His ultimate goal is to build them up. His, his ultimate goal is these are going to be the 12 people that go into all the world and they start to spread the message of, of the gospel. And so Jesus demonstrates what greatness is. First thing he does is he sits down. Right? He sits down on the ground. Now, when, if, if, you, if we lived in ancient times and we went into a king's palace, where's the throne? The throne is up. Right? Think of the movies that you see with a, with a palace and a throne. you got to go up some steps because the king's sitting up there, so everybody's looking up at him. Well, here's Jesus, and he sits down. He makes himself lower than everybody else. I mean, first off, he's already done that as God in coming down and make, making himself flesh. He's, he's already made himself lower, but he demonstrates this by sitting down. He, he's, he's telling them or showing them humility. See, humility is not thinking that you're worthless. Jesus didn't think he was worthless. Humility is knowing that your worth comes from God. That you can't do anything on your best day to increase your worth. You can't do anything on your worst day to reduce your worth. Because that comes from God. That's stable and that is secure. And when you live in that, you get to live in humility. You can sit down before people that, that are of a lesser station than you or uh, employees of yours or your children and not lose anything. Paul. Paul is the apostle that wrote much of the New Testament. And when, he is, when he's writing a letter to, to Timothy, uh, a guy that Paul introduced to the faith, Paul says of himself, I am the worst of sinners. But he doesn't stop there. He's not, he's not just trying to deprecate himself. That's not humility. Humility is not going around saying, I stink. I'm awful. I can't do anything right. I'm just going to sit here and wallow. That's not humility. That's just a, a low sense of self. Paul follows that up and says, he's the worst of sinners. But that gives Jesus the opportunity to have his patience displayed through Paul. It's an opportunity for, for Christ to be, to be powerful, to be demonstrated. So humility is when we adopt the attitude that we're going to stop trying to save ourselves. When we're going to tr stop trying to be good enough uh, to, to be the best, and we are going to, to let Jesus be the one that's in charge. See, greatness is found in humility which is exactly the opposite of the world's definition. I mean, we all, we're all in school or we work somewhere or we do something that we encounter this. The world's definition of greatness is that you've got people below you, right? You're in charge of people. You get to tell people what to do and they look up to you with awe and wonder. That's greatness, right? Greatness is accumulating things. There's three questions that define our identity. What do I do? What do I have? What do people think of me? Okay, these are the questions of identity. And so greatness in the world is I am going to accumulate answers to these questions. What do I do? Well, I got all these awards. I got a promotion. Uh, I, I'm, I'm the president of a company. Uh, I'm clearly significant because of what I do. 
What do I have? Well, I've got I've got a thousand Facebook friends. Nah, 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 nah. Okay, I got a new car. I I earn ten thousand dollars a week. Whatever it is, what do I have? I'm significant because of those things. What do people think of me? Well, I'm amazing and I'm good looking. I mean, clearly. So that is that I'm significant because of some image that I have that I'm portrayed that people are responding to, and so. Greatness is found in performance, in perfection, in possessions, which I can say, I think, possessions. I'm going to try that again, okay? Praise, in power. Okay, these are the things that, that the world values as the answers to identity, not humility. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, he says this a little more direct. It's the same thing that he just said in the Mark passage. He said, the greatest among you, so the greatest, will be your servant. The greatest among you is the one that gives up his or her rights. The, the, one, the greatest among you is the one that's going to stop trying to earn or to repay God for, for what he does. The greatest among you is the one that has the security to live out of who, who they are in Christ. The greatest among you is the one that's not doing something to get something in return. That's a servant, right? A servant doesn't, doesn't do something to get. A servant doesn't have any power. Uh, a, ser- a servant isn't trying to, to earn anything. They're just trying to, to make it to the next day. So here's a question for you. Okay? As you're thinking about this message and processing it, letting it roll around in your brain, what, what's your desire for greatness? What's your desire for greatness in your workplace? How are, you, uh, how are you being great by being a servant in your workplace? What is your desire for greatness as a parent? Or what's, your, what's the desire for greatness that restoration has as a church? Like I know, because I spent a lot of time a, a, as a church leader, this is super hard. What's the desire to be a servant as a church leader? It's really super easy to fall into that, that temptation and trap to say, okay, I'm a good church leader if I've got a big church and I got lots of people that are telling me how great I'm doing and, and how the message is every week and, and we're visible in the community. Okay, is that what it takes? What's your desire for greatness as a student or as a spouse? Because all of those things that I mentioned and so much more, they're roles. They're roles that we tend to look to to give us a sense of who we are. And we we use them to to boost ourselves up. But when we're we're rooted in Christ, when we're we're trusting, when we're following him, when we say, okay, if you're going on to your death, then I'm following you because I trust you. Then these are ways that we get to demonstrate greatness. This this is the countercultural path. You know, if, you, if you wonder what it's like to, to, to walk the, the road less traveled, that's what it is. So how can you be a servant in all these different roles? So then Jesus, to finish out our Mark passage, Jesus says this because he wants to show you what this looks like. Because me, you, all of us, we're slow learners. He took a little child whom he placed among them, and taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me 
does not, uh, sorry, the print is too small, so I've got old man eyes going on. I'm going to try again. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. See, don't read this through the lens of how we view children now. Right? We view children as uh, they're innocent, and they're trusting, and they're so cute, and, 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 and yeah, and they are. But back in this day, children were looked at, looked at as something, they don't, they don't add to your value, right? It, you, have to, you have to give. They're, they're a drain on resources. They take, they take energy. And until that point, till they got to an age where they could actually produce something. But, but having children was a drain. And children were powerless in that culture. There was, no, uh, there was no Department of Children's Welfare or anything looking out for the, for the needs of kids. There were no, there were no orphanages looking out for the, for the fatherless and the, the motherless. Children were, were powerless. So what Jesus is saying here is whoever welcomes, whoever treats one of these children regardless of their station, Regardless of they, if they can add to uh, your, your, the, your value, whether or not they can do anything for you. So when you see somebody at work and you're sizing them up, because we all do this, right? You go to a party or at work or you're in a new class or something. You look around and you say, who are the people that can, that can add to my life, right? I, I, was, I was a math major, okay? So... Anytime, anytime people walked in a room, they looked for me. And I'm not to brag, but I was really good. Okay, so like I helped people with their math. Okay, so I, I, was, I was able to, to build people up that way. If I wasn't good at math, they would have looked right over me. Okay. Who is in your life that when you look at, you're looking at them through the lens of what can they do for me? What can they provide for me? How, how are they making me better? That's not... That's not welcoming them as a child. Okay, Jesus is saying that the value of others is not found in how they impact your identity. In Christ, we affirm the value of others no matter what. From, from the least person, from the, from, the, from the homeless person, the person on the side of the road, to the powerful person. We're not supposed to give special favor to, to the rich and invite them in to sit at the head of the table uh, when, when we're in our gatherings. That's not supposed to matter in Christ. We're, we're supposed to live in acceptance and see people as God does. He loves them. He created them. He created them to, to, to be in Christ. So our, the way we treat others is the fruit of our source of significance. Because at the end of that, it says, whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. See, if you're welcoming to people who cannot build you up, provide anything, that they don't, add, they don't necessarily add anything to your identity, you're doing that because you're, you have welcomed God. That you are secure in who you are. You, you know why you're valuable. You know what you've been created for and what, you, what your purpose is. Welcoming God is being rooted in him. And we try so hard as disciples, we try hard to produce fruit, right? We, we try hard to, to look good, but that's not discipleship. That's, that's behavior modification, okay? And that's not growing closer to God. That's not obedience, okay? That's self, that, that, is, that is 
trying to control yourself. The disciples, they still struggled with this. We saw them arguing about who was the greatest here. In the book of Luke, talked about just before the, just before the Passover meal that they celebrated with Jesus, before, they, before he was arrested, they were having the same argument. They were still talking about who was the greatest. We're slow learners. Last week, when I, when I talked about the question, do, do you want to get well? Talked about getting well is walking in grace. It's learning, to, it's learning to accept and live in grace. And we see that grace is evident here as well. Because even though, they're, even though they had this argument and Jesus is addressing the heart and, and maybe their vision got a little clearer, they still struggled with it all the, all the way till Jesus died. They needed to live in grace just like, just like we do. Refining our desires means that we're not using them to satisfy our identity. Refining our desires means that we have, we have surrendered who we are, why we matter to God, and then we're letting our desires serve us. Please pray with me. God, I just, I want to pray for all of us because I know that myself, I struggle with, I struggle with this. What does it mean to be great? What does it mean to be a servant? What does it mean to be of value? So I pray for all of us as we leave here today, God, that we would, we would understand just a, a little bit better that following Jesus is about surrender and sacrifice that we would find ways, even one little way today, to, to be a servant to someone so that we can demonstrate the love and the patience and forgiveness of Jesus to somebody who needs to hear it, somebody needs to see it in us. God, I'm so thankful for your patience uh, in my life, and I, I pray that next week we're all just a, a little closer to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks so much, Scott. Wonderful message. In just a minute, we are going to have a time of response and a time of response.